Hi, everybody. I'm Don Landis. I'm an alcoholic, and I am delighted to be here. I've got a lot of friends in this room, and uh, which is really quite remarkable. I have a sobriety date of September 16, 1991, and uh, puts me at the 30-year mark. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I'll tell you if, you, if you know anything about me or if I reveal anything in this short hour that I have, you're going to see that you're applauding for Alcoholics Anonymous, not me. And uh, that's all our story, isn't it? Because nobody saw this coming. Nobody in my family saw it coming. None of my ex-employers saw it coming or my ex-girlfriend saw it coming or my friends saw it coming or the Los Angeles Police Department saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming. Uh, and they would say that uh, they don't know how it happened. They wouldn't know much about Alcoholics Anonymous, but they would be grateful that it happened. And uh, my 83-year-old mother wants you to know that she does not cry herself to sleep anymore. And she thanks Alcoholics Anonymous for that. I have an older sister who plays an important part of my story, and we are best friends. And years ago, I was talking to her because she called me up for counsel to get my opinion on something which is goofy. And, uh, and at the end of it, she said, isn't it funny, Donald? Who would have thought you would turn out to be the stable one in the family? <laughs> and because of that, every day is Halloween for me. I move through the world undetected. I conduct my business in the business world, and I am respectful and professional, and people say thank you for my services. I have a 25-year sober marriage under my belt to the beautiful Eileen, who's sober uh, almost 30 years. She's getting the hang of it. And, uh, <laughs> she's, uh... and to the people that don't understand alcoholism and don't understand this beautiful magic place called Alcoholics Anonymous, you would look at the way that I live my life and I would not stand out, good or bad. I'm not a great guy, but I'm a good guy. But I'm adding to the equation. I'm not taking from. I'm not a burden on society, which I was until I got here. And I love the fact I moved through the world undetected. But I get to carry my experience, strength, and hope before and after Alcoholics Anonymous, before the day, September 16, 1991, at the low point of my existence, when the loving hand of God, working through other members of Alcoholics Anonymous, reached into the abyss, into that mire of active alcoholism, and grabbed another suffering drunk. And I got to try AA. And I got to get sober. And I got to live this undeserved gift. I don't take it lightly. I don't think I'm just grateful. I'm amazed at how well AA works. And we, we take it for granted, at least I do on occasion. I shouldn't, but I do. I have to be honest. You know, I don't have to be, but I choose to be tonight. <laughs> That's unusual. <laughs> but I take it for granted. Sometimes, you know, days go by, and I'm not shocked by it. I'm not, I don't have my hair blown back by just the simple fact that I'm safe, I'm sane, and I'm sober. And I should, because I know what it was like to wake up in the morning, and it's in the room with me. You know, that thought, not tonight, God. Please, not tonight. I'm, I'm dying here. Yet every night I'm drunk. I know what it's like to be hopeless. I know what it's like to when you consider it and you sit there and you rack your brain and you try to think, how am I going to dig myself out of this hole I've dug for myself? There's no safe direction. And all the good is gone. And that's how I came to you. And I didn't realize something about Alcoholics Anonymous that's really interesting. The worse you are, the better we like you. <laughs> Which is unusual, you know. Because I wasn't telling anybody 
I wasn't telling anybody what was going on with me before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to tell you I didn't want to scare anybody. It was embarrassing. You know, a lot of, uh, like Bob B. says, a lot of alcoholism, we like to tell those tough guy stories and, you know, tearing up those bars and those car crashes and broken hearts and missed opportunities. But a lot of alcoholism is just tacky. It's just embarrassing. It's just those moments when you're new and you're trying to sleep at night, you know, just, and then you're just, you're just sitting there holding yourself, rocking, oh, I thought I forgot that. Oh, that was an old fifth grade. And it just comes washing back over you. All that stuff you thought you forgot. And I want to thank Brad and Megan for coming to the airport and picking me up today. I appreciate that. And I want to thank the committee and Ben for doing all this hard work putting this together. Doesn't it look great? I mean, isn't this something? I want to thank my friend Billy for giving an outstanding talk on uh, the doctor's opinion. I uh, enjoyed all of that. I refer to Billy affectionately as the voice in my head because uh, I hope you're here for Billy. He's going to talk about the traditions a little bit later on this weekend. And Billy has really helped me in my recovery, opened my mind about some things that I probably wouldn't be thinking about if it wasn't for his friendship and his willingness uh, to be honest and lead by example. So I always love listening to Billy talk. And, uh, and I'm glad I'm the second speaker because I only got to thank one speaker. So that's... that's <laughs> Because I'm terrible at remembering names because they're not mine, and uh, <laughs> pretty much. And, uh, you know, I've been given the task to talk about our first three steps. And I'm going to have to giddy up to do that because, as Billy talked about, we're pretty much done with the 12 steps by page 103. We're done with the first step by page 42. We're done with the second step by page 49 or something, and we're done with the first three steps. I mean, we're up to page 69, something around there, so or 66. And so a lot of big chunk uh, of our, you know, 103 pages devoted to the 12 steps, 60% of that is the first three steps, which explains why they gave me three hours to talk tonight. And, uh, <laughs> and I appreciate that, so get comfortable. And... Uh, and Ben introduced me. I, I think he did. He got he tripped up at the end there. I thought he was giving the talk there for a minute. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I come from Bellingham, Washington. And if you don't know where that is, we're, go to Seattle. All right? Drive about 100 miles north. Stop 20 miles south of the Canadian border, and you'll be in Bellingham. We're right up there at the Canadian border. Uh, America's first defense against Canada, I suppose. And, uh, and it's just like you'd imagine, you know, 150-foot trees and a beautiful sound and snow-capped mountains. And I got deer in my yard uh, every morning. And, I mean, it's just idyllic. And, you know, it's funny. Alcoholics Anonymous gives you those moments where you, you know, I'll be driving home through the woods. And I'll just see all of God's work. And I'll have that moment of gratitude. And I'll think, you know, how did I get here? And then I'll remember being 25 years old in Boston and tearing up a party in a blackout and the cops got called and I'm running through the snow trying to get away from the cops and I, I slid underneath this porch and I had my back turned to the opening like, hey, if I can't see you, you can't see me. <laughs> and I remember the fear I was in because I did it again and I'd just gotten out of jail and I didn't want to go back to jail. And I remember thinking, drunk out of my mind at 25 years old, how did I get here? 
and remembering, you know, the family I came from, and I wasn't raised that way, and I was our graduating class athlete in high school, and I was the guy that people wrote things in my yearbook and said I was going to go places and do things and accomplish things. And at 25, all the good was gone, yet I didn't get sober till I was 31. And I guess you could say I know everything there is to know about powerlessness. I didn't have the vocabulary to describe it to you. You see, everything I know about my disease, everything I know about what I'm in the grips of, was acquired in your presence in Alcoholics Anonymous through your big book, strong sponsorship, and your willingness, as the book says, to relive the horrors of your past. You know, this magic glue that holds us together, that breaks down the walls of indifference, that breaks down my uniqueness when I'm new, the ability to identify with you. Because you would share your stories in a humorous, and in an open, and a transparent manner. And I would hear you talk about things that I swore I was going to take to my grave that I would never talk about. You talked about the way you lived and thought and felt, and I realized I had lived and thought and felt that way. And that identification tore down those walls, and I was able to hear what you were trying to say to me when we got to the solution. But that identification was so important. And I have no legitimate reason for ending up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would love to have one. You know, I have a story, you know, and everybody's got a story, and it's very funny. You know, I got the story I dragged into Alcoholics Anonymous with me, which is tragic, you know, and hopefully if I told it just right, somebody would feel sorry for me. Always my intention when I told that story. And then I have the story I know to be true today. You know, if nothing else, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous will take a delusional, self-centered alcoholic like myself, and without my permission, if I go through the process, I will be transported to a little place we like to call reality. <laughs> but before we can get to reality, you know, I've got to get rid of some old ideas. And all you need to know about my drinking, I'll give you the punch list, because I don't, I don't have time to really go to a drunk log for identification, but I'll tell you, the loser's resume I had when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I had warrants for my arrest in two counties. I was $80,000 in debt. I hadn't worked in a year. I'm 31 years old. I don't have a car. I don't have a valid driver's license. I don't have a checking account. I'm living at my sister's house because when the going gets tough, the tough go home, don't we? And, uh, and the funny thing about all of that is... I was so embarrassed about it, and I got 12-stepped in Alcoholics Anonymous on my second night of recovery. Two good men carried the message to me and assigned one of them to me as a sponsor. I didn't even know what happened, but they did, because they knew how this thing worked. And I remember my first sponsor, when he was interviewing me, and I don't understand at the moment that that's what he's doing. He's trying to find out as much as he can find out about me so he knows how to approach me. And as I'm slowly sliding across these items of embarrassment, these things that I just was so sad that I had done these things to myself, he got happy. <laughs> I remember telling him I got warrants for my arrest in two counties. He goes, oh, you're an overachiever, you know, big smile on his face. <laughs> oh, you don't have a car? Who needs a car? You live at your sister's house. Of course you do, you know. I started to feel better about my wreckage. And, uh... <laughs> but I'll tell you a funny thing about that. You know, whatever you bring to Alcoholics Anonymous, that stuff, that shameful stuff that you're so embarrassed about that you're going to take to your grave, man, tell somebody, because we'll put it to service in Alcoholics Anonymous immediately. 
And my first sponsor, he never tried to make me feel good about that stuff. He never said, oh, there, there, little alcoholic, you're home. It's all going to work out, you know. And he, he found out I owed the IRS 80 grand. He goes, yeah, man, that's a lot of money. You may never get out of debt. He goes, but you'll be sober. Like, that's a consolation. But, man, he put it in the service of Alcoholics Anonymous immediately. I mean, for the next couple of years before I started getting that debt, you know, paid off and stuff, if any newcomer had the audacity to complain to my sponsor about his little $1,500 IRS debt, my sponsor would go, hold that thought, Jimmy. Hey, Don, you got a minute? <laughs> and I'd walk over all innocently, and he'd go, Don, tell Jimmy how much you owe the IRS. And I'd look at Jimmy, and I'd go, I owe the IRS $80,000. <laughs> And Jimmy would go, Jesus, and my sponsor would laugh, and Jimmy would feel better, and I'd walk away, I just want to be a service. <laughs> so bring it all, we need it. We need it. There's nothing wasted in God's economy. We bring it to Alcoholics Anonymous, and God finds a way to turn it into gold, doesn't he? And isn't that what we have? We have our stories, you know, these things that we come in all embarrassed about. And I got some old ideas, you know, I burned my life to the ground. I'm not a guy that hit a bottom and came to AA. I hit a bottom and I decorated it. I was never going to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and then 25 years old, man, I'm in the height of my drinking. 25 years old, I get what the big book refers to on page 39. And also, I think, page 31, it talks about self-knowledge. And you see, self-knowledge kills drunks like me. It kills us dead. And on page 39, it says, For the real alcoholic, he will absolutely be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And that's a problem for a guy like me. And you know why? Self-knowledge isn't delivered by your family or your girlfriend or the employer or the district attorney or the doctor stitching you up and you don't feel the needle. I had been people talking to me about my drinking for years. Self-knowledge was delivered to me in a dirty motel room at 2 in the morning. There's all this screaming in the room, and I realize I'm alone in the room, and the screaming's in my head and my voice saying, you're going to die if you don't do something about your drinking. And I got it. And i got to be honest, it felt like a solution. It felt powerful. Now I know. Now I understand. Now I'll be able to do something about it. And from that moment to the day I walked into AA and got sober was six years from that moment. The folly of self-knowledge that tells a guy like me, it's about more information. If I just have the right information, if I just have the right consequences, if I just had the right willpower, I could stop drinking. And I had all the information. I had all the consequences. I had put my human will against this thing as hard as I could, and I ended up more dead and alive at age 31 in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never want to forget what I do with my alcoholism when I take it on alone. And I didn't see it coming because I love the effect produced by alcohol. We're quick to talk about what alcohol did to us, but we're not so quick to talk about what it did for us. And I've been coming to AA for a long time, listening to you talk about getting drunk for the first time. And it's not unique. We all sound the same, male or female, so some variation on the same theme, right? I got drunk for the first time when I was 17, and I felt 10 feet tall. And I felt bulletproof, and I felt better looking, and I felt funnier and more confident. And we say it as though it's delusion or fantasy, right? I don't think so. I mean, my big book tells me that every man woman is blessed with certain skills, aptitudes, and abilities. We'll call these our gifts from God. 
These are the things about yourself you're just naturally good at. You've always known it. You didn't have to work at it. Everybody gets a different set of gifts, right? Some people can sing. Some people can do math. Some people are good looking. Some people are athletic. But we all get our own gifts. What are these gifts from God? Your birthright, if you will. Always felt that they were just outside of your grasp. That you suspected they were there, but you couldn't firmly make contact with them. Something in AA we like to call what? Potential. <laughs> and then in my case, at 17 years old, something as powerful as alcohol comes into this alcoholic system. And let me tell you what, at 17 I get drunk for the first time, and it's not fantasy. And it's not delusion. You put a couple of drinks of alcohol in me, guess what? I am funnier, and I am tougher, and I am more fearless, and I am better looking, damn it. And I am more of everything I always hoped and suspected and dreamed I could be. And it's not any more complicated than this. I fall in love with the effect produced by alcohol. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than the fact that I like the version of myself with a couple of drinks in me more than I like the version of myself when I'm sober. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my, my sponsor, and I told him because I have a lot of outside issues in my story. And he said, do you think you're an alcoholic? I said, I don't know. I know I got a problem with drinking, that's for sure. And he used the big book and the doctor's opinion to help qualify me. And we went through the questions in there and we read the doctor's opinion. And what I found out is I identified with it. You see, the problem with me is I don't have to get drunk to get relief. I'm going to be clear. I'm going to say that again. I don't have to get drunk to get relief. I get a sense of ease and comfort with just taking a couple of drinks. In fact, I can drive to the liquor store, and as I'm getting closer to the parking lot, my fears start to reduce and my problems start to fall away from me because we're about to get right. I don't even have to drink it. To experience a positive effect. But you see, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop with a couple. And I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I read the doctor's opinion and I read about the physical aspect, the allergy, the phenomenon of craving, once too many, a thousand's not enough. And you know what kills a guy like me isn't the fact that I'm physically abnormal than 90% of the people in the population. The problem is I don't know it. I don't drink, alarms don't go off, phenomenon of craving, phenomenon of craving, nothing happens. I want to be clear, my drinking may appear to the non-alcoholic to be bizarre and dangerous. It's never felt that way to me. I've never taken a drink and thought it was the wrong time, the wrong amount, and the wrong situation. My drinking has always felt necessary and accurate. The drinking I can't understand, they're drinking. And you know what I'm talking about. Normal drinkers, social drinkers, people that say unconscionable things like, I'm starting to feel it. I think I'll stop. <laughs> my favorite story about social drinking. When Eileen and I got engaged, my family was thrilled. My older sister met Eileen and pulled me aside and said, if you screw this up, I'll kill you. They just fell in love with her. So they threw a big engagement party for us. And there's social drinking going on at the engagement party, right? And so my sister's drinking a glass of white wine. She's non-alcoholic. Eileen and I have our club sodas, and we're talking in the kitchen. And my sister saw some friends arrive that she wanted to greet. She said, I'll be right back. She set her glass of white wine down on the counter and left the kitchen. Eileen noticed that. 
Eileen's looking at the wine, looking at my sister, looking at the wine, seeing my sister get further away, and in a somewhat panicked voice, she says to me, Pat left your wine. <laughs> and I look at the wine, I go, yeah, baby, she did. She goes, well, should I go tell her? And I said, honey, you got to understand, she's not one of us. At this particular moment, she's not experiencing separation anxiety. <laughs> but I don't have to ask you. I already know the answer. We don't leave our drinks behind. We leave coats, shoes, automobiles, and relationships. You can throw us off a cliff into the stormy seas underneath. The first thing they'll see emerge from the depths is that can of Budweiser. <laughs> so I got this twofold disease. I got an obsession of the mind and physical allergy, and I don't know it, which means what? I'm drinking in ignorance, right? So I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. I'm overmatched, and I don't know it. And I start getting brainwashed. Maybe you were brainwashed too before you came to AA. Remember that? It's always done by the same people, isn't it? People that love us the most and want the best things in the world for us. These are not bad people. These are not people trying to hurt us. These are people that are trying to help us. But unfortunately, they don't understand alcoholism any more than we do. So what do they say to us? Maybe they said it to you. Oh, you're a great guy. You got so much potential. Oh, you, you could probably be anything you wanted to be, go anywhere you wanted to go if you just quit drinking. You'd be so happy if you just quit drinking. All your dreams would come true if you just quit drinking. And what do I do? I lay my experience against that information and what do I find? Went to jail, I was drinking. Smacked that guy, I was drinking. Blew up the relationship, I was drinking. Well, you know, it's easy for me to identify whiskey as the culprit. But it doesn't explain the real question, which is what is so distasteful about this thing called life? A life that I see other people seemingly able to meet life on life's terms. What is so distasteful about it that I got to be drunk every night just to be on the planet? And then once I decide, because of a jackpot, right? I go to jail, I crash a car, I break a heart, something gets this alcoholic's attention. And I think to myself, this has to stop. This is no way to live. I wasn't raised this way. It's not fun anymore. And so what do I do? I gather all my human power. And I turn that in whatever weapon I can. And I make alcoholic declarations. I'm, not, I'm quitting drinking, so don't try to tempt me. And I just hang on and I don't drink. And then in the doctor's opinion, Silkworth so eloquently and briefly and concisely describes what happens to an alcoholic like me when you just separate him from his solution. And for me, it happens in two to five days. Because I love quitting drinking. I must. I've done it a hundred times, right? But somewhere between two and five days, I have what Silkworth describes as a state that's irritable, restless, and discontent. And I'm here to offer. <laughs> that's the biggest understatement in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it doesn't feel that way, does it? Sounds almost clinical. Irritable, restless, and discontent. Doesn't feel that way. I'm irritable. I want to hurt you, right? <laughs> I'm restless. Maybe I'll go over there. Nope, I don't like them. Maybe I'll go over here. Nope, they don't like me. Maybe I'll get some ice cream. God, I'm getting fat, you know? It, just, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, who I'm doing it with, where I'm doing it. Wrong people, wrong thing, wrong place. I can't find my place in the world. I'm a dog. 
chasing his own tail, trying to find the right place to lay down where my head goes, nope, nope, nope. And I'm discontent. And when I came here, if you asked me what kills alcoholics, I would have said whiskey and car crashes, right? And today I say discontent. You know, because as a class of people, alcoholics, me included, you know what we do better than any other people I've ever met? We do wrong really well. Right? We are children of chaos. You know, give us something, right? Break our heart. Have a reversal of fortune, a bad medical diagnosis. For God's sakes, give me something I can point to and go, that's why I'm screwed up. It makes sense. You know what makes a guy like me crazy? I mean, crazy is when there's nothing wrong. But I feel like something's wrong. And this doesn't just happen when I'm new in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? This happened, this happened at 8 years sober. This happened at 15 years sober. This happened at 22 years sober, right? I got a little touch of it going on right now. You know, you lay in bed and you do that spiritual math. I remember the first time that really happened to me with power, I was 8 years sober. I'm laying in bed and I'm doing the spiritual math. I look at Eileen sleeping next to me. I go, well, I'm married to a beautiful woman. Never saw that. And that's awesome. You know, I'm sober 8 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a gift. I sponsor half of North America. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm active in the biggest home group in America. You know, who'd have thought? You know, the business is doing well. I got a career. They respect me there. I got, I'm making more money than I'd ever thought I'd make. Wow, if there's any better, I'd have to go in the backyard and hang myself. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I, I can't feel any of it. I can't feel any of it. When you got a head and a gut that's telling you, I should be so grateful, why am I so discontent? Why are all these things, when I dreamed about them, when I hoped they'd come to pass to me, now that they've been added to my life, these blessings, why do they feel like burdens? Untreated alcoholism is available to a guy like me. Anytime I want to run on self-will long enough and think that my human power is the solution, I can find myself irritable, restless, and discontent. Here's my definition of discontent. I have a complete and utter inability to experience joy in a sober state, regardless of the blessings of my life. My world becomes gray and colorless, and I start to exist rather than experience. And I feel like life's rushing by me, and all I can do is hold my hands out and my fingertips scrape the wall of life as I rush by, and nothing seems to stick. I'm not having meaningful experiences. And what do I do? Do I lean into God when that happens? No, I lean into self. You scare me or threaten me, my knee-jerk reaction, my default position is always self. The position of God will always be something that I have to work for. It is not my natural inclination. My sponsor took me through the first step. And he told me, he told me this about all the steps. He goes, I don't believe he worked a step until you can teach it to somebody. He goes, so tomorrow night after the meeting, you're going to teach me the first step. Then we'll know you've done it. And I took it on as a challenge. You know, I'm a people pleaser and I want people to... I'm, a, I'm an approval seeker. I'm not a people pleaser. I don't care if you're happy. Just give me your approval. That was a big lie. I don't really care if you're happy, but... But tell me I'm great. We can be friends, you know. It's like, you know who I like? People that like me, you know? And I boned up, man. I went home that night, read everything I could in the big book, read the 12 and 12, and I was ready. And the next night I gave my sponsor what I believe 
is the greatest dissertation on the first step in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous ever proffered by a newcomer. And he said no. Well, actually, he said no the way he always said no, three times. No, no, no. <laughs> and he asked me a short question. He said, do you think you've admitted to your innermost self you're an alcoholic? I said, I think so. He goes, well, let's find out. He goes, go home tonight. <laughs> what he said was, go home tonight in that room you're mooching off of your family. He goes, sit on the end of the bed with the lights off. No TV, no music, no nothing. He goes, think one thought, one thought only, and think it repeatedly over and over in your mind for about 10 minutes, and then give me a call. And here's the thought. I'm an alcoholic. Well, that seems insufficient and inadequate. Seems a little silly, a little embarrassing, actually. But I'm new in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to make good, and I want my sponsor's approval, so there I am, seeing the end of bed in the dark. I am an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. And then it started to change. Became a question, you know? I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. And as I ran this thought repetitively through my mind, without my permission, things started to attach themselves. I remember being underneath the porch in Boston. I remember thinking I killed my best friend in that car wreck. I remember thinking that I was going to marry that girl only to have her take that ring off and throw it at my chest and say, I can't be with you, you're a drunk and you'll never change. All these things that I hoped I'd forgotten, all these things I'd poured all that whiskey on to push down to the bottom of my soul, they all started bubbling up. They all were attached to that simple thought that I'm an alcoholic. And I saw how hard I had tried. And all the times people said to me, why don't you try harder? If you really wanted to quit drinking, you'd quit drinking. And how cruel that was to an alcoholic of my type. Not trying. Who tried harder than we did? Where every day I wake up and it's in the room with me, it holds my hand and it walks me through life. It's only a matter of time before I drink again. It's not a matter of if. It's always been a matter of when. And I see the futility. And I see the fatality of my alcoholism. I see the trajectory. I see the seconds and inches and the near misses. I see the lost friends, the people that died along the way, knowing that the only difference between me and them was blind luck and nothing more. And the hair stood up on my arm and I called my sponsor and I said this, I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm in a lot of trouble. And now I get the first step. Because if I don't understand the trouble I'm in in the first step, if I don't understand what really has me in its talons, if I don't understand what's really stripping the skin off me, if I don't understand that I'm beyond human aid, if I don't understand it's my destiny to drink myself to death unless something big happens in my life, I will not approach the rest of the steps with the type of commitment and fervor and attention required for successful consummation. And I can take that momentum, born out of desperation, which produces the willingness that only the dying can have. And now I can look at the second step with a fresh set of ideas. Because the eyes I had when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I knew what you were talking about. I knew you meant God. And I knew God would have nothing to do with me. So we can close that right now. We can get sober. We can do this thing called AA. But we're going to have to do it with something that isn't called God. And now my eyes have changed. 
You see, my sponsor understood that I had the most precious commodity any newcomer can have in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's more important than anything. Think about this. We come to AA, we don't know anything about the book. We don't have a relationship with God. We don't know anybody in AA. All we know is failure, pain, loneliness, and separation. Yet somehow, we get sober. How is that? With no usable material, nothing to work with, we get sober. There's got to be something big here. And it turned out that that commodity I came in with is what the old timers called desperation. And the reason desperation is so valuable, it turns out that desperation is the propellant that pushes people through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But like any propellant you can think of, nobody has an inexhaustible supply. So how much you got? Three months? Six months? Nine months? Thirty days? And if you sponsor people, and I know a lot of you do, we all know when we work with new people, we know the moment they ran out of their propellant, don't we? It seems like one day it's like, what do I do next, sponsor? And then you ask them to show up and help you set up a meeting. It's like, why are you always asking me? Don't you sponsor anybody else? Don't you know I have a life? And you think, ah, crap, he lost his propellant, you know. I'll tell you, I rescue big books from thrift stores, right? Me and my wife, we've been going to thrift stores for since we've known each other, looking for big books that get discarded. And every time, now and then, you find a gem. And here's a gem. There's someone's name in it. There's a sobriety date in ink, right? Super optimistic. <laughs> right? And then I start going through the big book, Doctor's Opinion, more about alcoholism, there is a solution, we ignore. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for highlighting. I'm looking for notes in the margin. And I will start to judge the step work of an alcoholic I've never met. <laughs> And I'll see their notes, and I'll see their highlighting. Oh, very good. That's accurate. I'm um, craving, you yeah. Mental obsession. Couple. Oh, very good. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I can't, he can't, so let him. Very good. First three steps. Boiled down. Very good. Right? And I'll look at the highlighting. And very often in these books, one or two places, the highlighting stops. And the rest of the book is pristine. And it's either right after the third step or after the fifth step. And it's a visual presentation of when our new friend lost their propellant. When they thought, I've done about enough. I'm good. So I go into the second step and I have the, pre the misconceived idea that most of us have with the second step that i got to believe in God. And here's where good sponsorship comes in. I want to tell you, my sponsor took me through all three sides of the triangle. Unity, service, and recovery. And not once did he tell me he was doing that. He was a big believer that an alcoholic would rather see a demonstration of goodwill than talk of spiritual discoveries. He was a big believer that an alcoholic would rather witness a magnificent sunset than the world's greatest sermon. So what he did is he used that ancient spiritual principle of invitation. And he invited me into his vibrant AA life. He invited me into his friendships. He invited me into the things he was doing. And by inviting the new man or new woman into our lives, it leaves the sufferer with a little bit of self-esteem. You see, I've been living alone and separate from you for so long. I feel invisible. And I feel so weak and so hopeless and so worthless. Yeah, I had a shot at a good life once, but let's, let's admit, that's in the rearview mirror. It's never going to happen for me. And I join AA, and you invite me everywhere. 
to set up meetings, to clean up meetings, to make coffee, to put out literature, to go out for coffee, go watch the football game, all these things you invite me to. And you know what it said? You see me. And if you've been living alone, and you've been living separate, and you've been living in loneliness for as long as I did, it breaks you wide open. Suddenly I'm a part of again. And it conspires to leave you with a feeling that maybe it's not over yet. Maybe, just maybe, I got a little strength left in me yet that I didn't think I had. And that's because of your invitation and your willingness to include me in your life, to make me feel special and important. You said things to me when I was new that I couldn't understand, but they broke the ice around my heart. You said things like, we need you so desperately, kid. We're so glad you're here. And I would have that tough guy, dismissive attitude. Yeah, okay, whatever. But your words would echo in my head when I tried to go to sleep at night that you wanted me. And so my sponsor started getting me ready for the second step long before I was on the second step. My, my third night in Alcoholics Anonymous, at the low point of my existence, audio and visual hallucinations coming out of my skin, 72 hours without a drink, and I'm physically addicted, so I am in a mess at the Simi Valley Alano Club. I am bouncing off the walls. I need constant supervision, because I'm looking at the door, you know what I mean? My sponsor never, <laughs> never walked into a meeting before me. He let me walk in. He was behind me. He was security. You're not getting out of here. Right? But my third night after the meeting, he comes up to me and he says, Listen, tonight when you get home, I want you to get on your knees and I want you to thank God for keeping you sober. And I said, I don't believe in God. He said, That's okay. He believes in you. So listen, when you get home tonight, get on your knees. When I interrupted him a little more forcefully, he said, You're not listening. I don't believe in God. He goes, Listen, you can interrupt me all you want, but this is going to take all night if you do it. So. You thank God for keeping you sober. When you get up tomorrow in the morning, hit your knees and ask God to keep you sober that day. And I'm like, I don't believe in God. He goes, stand up. So I stand up. He goes, sit down. I sit down. He goes, great. Your knees work. You can pray. Don't worry about it. <laughs> he, he goes, where in this equation did I tell you to believe in God? He goes, Don, I'm telling you a simple action to take. I don't care if you believe in it. I don't care if you mock it. I don't care if you think I'm the biggest idiot in the world, but believe this, I believe. I'm asking you to take an action. I go, Don, do you, Don, do you know everything in the world? Or do you just act like you know everything in the world? He goes, what are you so afraid of? Well, you can't do that to a guy like me. You can't tell me I'm afraid of anything. I'll do, you want me to jump off a bridge? Just tell me I'm afraid, right? You, you tell me, you know, you, you want me to fight that big gorilla in the corner? Tell me I'm afraid. I will get my rear end kicked, but I will fight him. You know, I'm easily manipulated. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, my sponsor manipulated this newcomer to take spiritual actions I didn't believe in yet. And I remember sitting there that first third, third night of sobriety. I'm on my knees. I'm praying to a God I don't believe in. It's embarrassing. And I think about all the, I mean, my God, I was arrested naked in a blackout in Rancho Cucamonga, California. <laughs> the neighbors told me. Right? But sober, day three in Alcoholics Anonymous, I got the door locked, lights off, praying nobody sees me. Oh. And I say the words, don't I? Uh, God, I, if you're there, which I know you're not, um, thanks for keeping me sober. Um, 
But I'm a good alcoholic, and I want your approval. I show up at the meeting the other night. My sponsor sees me. He goes, did you pray last night? I said, yep. He goes, did you pray this morning? I go, yep. I go, but I got one question. He goes, what's that? I go, I sleep in the nude. He goes, too much information, but what's that got to do with anything? I said, well, when I prayed, I was naked. Do you think that's okay? And he got a look on his face that I was going to be, I was going to become familiar with this look as the years went by. He kind of grabbed his forehead and started rubbing it and looked at his shoes and said, God made you. He knows everything about you. I'm sure it's okay. Just please never tell me about it again. (laughs) And little did I know, I'm on the road to spirituality. I didn't know that in essence, and let's talk spirit rather than directions. There's directions in the big book. There's arguments in the big book. There's a sweeping away of arguments against the idea of a higher power. My favorite being, when you meet a group of people like this that are doing so well and showing stability in their life, it it really presents a strong argument why somebody should have faith. My pass into the second step and through the second step was you. Because I believed you had been where I'd been, done what I had done, felt the way I'd felt, but you weren't living, feeling, or doing those things anymore. And every one of you was given credit to a power greater than themselves, God as you understand him, whatever you were, it was all the same. So either you're having separate meetings where you screw with newcomers' minds, <laughs> or it really happened to you. And your belief carried me long enough to do what? Investigate. That's all I did. So I start hitting my knees, praying to a God I don't believe in. Four or five nights into that, four or five mornings into that, I get up and I feel different. Not a lot, but a little different. A little hopeful. And I don't know if it was a simple fact, like, look at me trying. Remember that, when you tried in AA? Because by the time I got here, I'd given up trying anything in my life. Look at me trying. And in the we agnostics, there's a couple of things that are really important to me. The first one being the simple second step question, right? Do I now believe? No. Or am I even willing to believe in a power greater than myself? And I said to my sponsor, what's the difference? And he said, well, you don't believe, right? And he goes, yeah. He goes, what would a guy who was willing to believe, what actions do you think he'd be taking? Well, I don't know. Maybe praying on his knees in the morning and the night to a God he didn't believe in. Maybe starting a conversation with this power, this power greater than myself that you assure me cares about me. I don't believe it, but you assure me he's there like the feelings I have for a friend. And I start a conversation with him. I started a conversation, a glancing, mocking, I know you're not there conversation over 30 years ago. And the conversation continues today. And it's the most important conversation in my life. You see, I'm never alone. But it started with a simple conversation. God, if you're there and I know you're not. Because you see, I wanted it to be true. Wouldn't it be nice if it was true? I need it to be true. Because if it's not, I'm screwed. I don't have any other plan. I've tried everything I could think of and I just keep drinking. So it's interesting how you approach things you don't believe in or you're not sure of. And the approach seems to make the difference. So are we approaching it to prove it isn't true, or are we approaching it to hopefully find out it is? Approach makes a difference. And I wanted it to be true. You see, I looked for God when I was new. 
I'm 15 years sober. I go to a newcomer meeting. There's newcomers in there, and they're talking about God shots. And I'm getting resentful. Why are the new people getting all the God shots? <laughs> this guy says, I left the halfway house this morning. I don't have any money, and I smoke, and I know I'm going to be bumming cigarettes at AA. And I hate bumming cigarettes because it makes me feel like, I don't know, a bum. And, uh, and as I'm walking to the AA meeting, I look on the ground. There's a $10 bill. And I look left. I look right. Nobody's there. I pick it up and I buy cigarettes. And for one day, I don't have to be a bum. And I know that God put that $10 for me so I didn't have to feel so bad about myself. And it was a real God shot. Thanks for letting me share, right? And all these God shots are going by. And and I'm sitting on my throne of contempt, 15 years sober, spiritually exalted. (laughs) Thinking to myself, oh, those wacky newcomers. They're so cute. And that little voice I like to call God that speaks to me sometimes said this in my head. When was the last time you got a God shot, Slick? And I couldn't remember. Well, now I got a resentment. (laughs) Why don't I get God shots? I used to get them. And then I, I started thinking about what they were doing as opposed to what I'm doing. These guys are broken in half, just like I was. These guys got nothing, just like I didn't have nothing. These guys are at the beginning. They don't know AA works. They're hoping AA works. They haven't (laughs) <laughs> they haven't, you know, moved into the section I've moved into where I'm willing to tell anybody that AA works. I believe in it, right? I believe in God. I believe, I believe, I believe. You know what happens when you believe too much? You stop looking for evidence. These guys are getting up every day and they don't know if it's true, right? So they go out because their life depends on it. If this thing isn't true, they're screwed and they're looking for God. And guess what happens when you look for God? You find him. Fifteen years sober, I start looking for God. I look for him when I'm driving down the road. I look for him in the faces of my friends. I look for him in my life. I look for him in these things that I used to think were coincidences. Is it odd or God? And the minute you look, you find. It turns out that most of my problems today that I want to tell you are, you know, step six problems, step seven problems, step 11 problems, step... Every time I talk to somebody that's screwed up, they're like, hey, I got a real 10-step problem. I got a real 11-step. There's something wrong with my spiritual condition. I'm telling you, most of my stuff comes down to a second-step dilemma. Have I come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, take care of this problem, help me in my marriage, help me with my health... When did I start to think it was too big for God and it was my job? The second step is alive and well. That's not newcomer stuff. That's not some entryway that we go to advance spirituality. It's the idea, do, am I willing to do the work and seek so I know that there's nothing too big for God? Nothing too big for God. Most of my problems are simply a second step dilemma. Because in the quiet of my mind, In the dark of the night, I'm afraid that God won't take care of it. And I'm selfish and I'm self-centered as much today as when I walked in. And I know that because I'm the guy that will tell you, 30 years on the sunny side of the street, 30 years my needs being met, 30 years I've had a roof over my head and food. What about tomorrow? I don't know. It could all go to shit. (laughs) Can you imagine? Can you imagine God... Can you imagine God just bat, just hitting himself in the forehead going, what do I have to do with this guy? I give him everything. I fix everything. And he walks around this neurotic ball of, what about me? What if it goes wrong? What if it happens? I think I'm going to smite him. I think I'm going to smite him. You know, just like, 
So I'm on the road to spirituality. My sponsor said, okay, you've answered the questions. You're willing to believe. And we could talk about the fundamental idea of God deep down inside every woman, woman and child is the fundamental idea of God. It could be obscured by pomp, by circumstance, by worship of other things. But in the final analysis, it's only there that he can be found. What does that mean? Good news! What we're looking for, we're looking with. He's already here. Right? I don't have to put on the right robe with the right music, the right meditation book. Get spiritual. Oh. He's already here. God, where are you? I'm right here, dummy. You know, I just... <laughs> and I can take that second step. I think it's true. I want to believe it's true. But I can keep walking because I'm willing to believe and take the actions of somebody that's going to seek. What am I making a commitment to in the second step before I believe? I'm making a commitment I'm going to seek. I'm going to look. Our experience collectively is that if you look, you will find so I go into the third step. And the third step is the sledgehammer for me that corrects all that brainwashing, right? I come in here, I think it's mommy, I think it's daddy, I think it's bad breaks and misunderstandings. It's really not my fault. Let me explain it to you. I think it's a matter of control, of willpower, and all these things. The first step lets me know I'm going to drink again. There's no hope in the first step, right? Here's the message of the first step. We are screwed. That's the first step. Second step is we get introduced to the solution. Maybe it'll happen. Happen for them. Why not me? Why would he give it to all of them and let me go? That doesn't make any sense. So maybe it'll happen for me. But in the third step, the sledgehammer of correction comes out. Because I think I got a drinking problem, don't I? I'm brainwashed into thinking if I just put the plug in the trucker, just don't drink. Get it. All my dreams have come true. How are you? I'm 47 days sober and my dreams are coming true. You know, <laughs> Turns out alcohol is not my problem. It's my solution. It's a solution that's going to kill me and hurt everyone that has the misfortune of loving a loser like me. It's ripping the skin off my body. It's leaving a body count and a trail of blood. But it is my solution. It's not my problem. And I'll tell you, if you're working on your problem, and it turns out that that's actually your solution, you are trying to change it and protect it at the same time. Right? I'm trying to stop drinking, but I'm trying to protect my right to drink simultaneously. Because it's valuable. It's the only thing I know that makes a big hurt go away. In the third step, I get introduced to my problem. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our trouble. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-seeking, self-delusion, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly, without provocation, but invariably, we find at some point earlier, we made decisions based on self, which later places in a position to be hurt. What does that mean? I'm the problem. See, I want my selfishness and centeredness to be like a coat that doesn't fit well. I've got to stop wearing it. I can't get rid of it. It's me. You can call it my ego. You can call it myself. But it is me. And how do I know it's still there? Right? I mean, I've been sober 30 years, done a lot of step work, worked with a lot of people, have a good relationship with God. How do I know it's there? Because I wake up every day in a state of self. Every day. Every day I wake up thinking about who? Me. I'll let you know the day I wake up thinking about one of you. I have ne Listen. This guy in the front row, Sheldon. Guy sitting next to him, Steve. Girl right here, Masoon. Jennifer. I mean, I love these people like brothers and sisters, right? 
I mean, I got history with these people. I've done, I've been through stuff with Sheldon I can't even tell you about. It is crazy, right? I've never woke up thinking about him. <laughs> if he called me and said, I need you, Donnie, I would drop what I was doing and I would go to him. But I woke up thinking about me this morning. He's gone through stuff in his life. Steve's gone through stuff. We've all gone through stuff in our life. Even when they're in the middle of it. That's eighth or ninth thing I think about. That's only prayer and meditation, you know? Once I get me out of the way and I can go, oh yeah, Sheldon might die. I should probably call him. You know what I mean? It's just like... I wake up every day thinking about me. And when we talk about steps 10 and 11... Later, with another speaker, they're going to tell you what we do about that. But the point is, it's alive and well in me. It's my default setting. And the undirected thought life seems to go there. And the third step is the beginning of just the understanding. Alcohol is not the problem, it's the solution. The problem is I'm selfish and self-centered. It's not that I, I think poorly of myself or I think too highly of myself. It's that I think only of myself. And that creates an over-exaggerated sense of being. Which means what? I'm grandiose. It's only a big deal because it's happening to me. Which we call what? Playing God. And if I believe what it says, that there is one who has all power, that one is God, may I find him now. The illusion that I have any power, the delusion that I can do anything about myself or anyone else, that these achievements I've had in sobriety this good fortune or good luck. And let's say I worked hard. And that's the reason I have that house, that wife, that vehicle. All true. Where'd the power come from? Where'd the talent come from? Where'd the gifts come from? Did you create it? Were you a little baby, a blank palette, Donnie? And suddenly you said, I want to be good at this, that, and the other thing? Or was it given to you? Like everything else in your life. So it turns out that sobriety is a gift. We call it that. It's a gift. But it comes disassembled. And Alcoholics Anonymous is a place that we come and with tutelage of people that have learned to put the gift together, they simply show us how to put the gift together. But around here, it's spirit. This is not of the mind. This is not academic. This is not cross your T's, dot your I's, and do it just right, and everything will be fine. This is not of the mind. This is of the spirit. This is not academic. This is spiritual. This is not a lack of information problem that I suffer from. It is a lack of power problem. And so what happens in the third step, because you told me this, we bought the ticket and we took the ride. My sponsor tells me I need to turn my will and life over to the care of God, and I don't know how to do that. And what it feels like is he walks me to the abyss and says, jump. And I look over the edge and I see nothing but blackness. And I said, you jump. And he says, I already did. And I go, well, if I jump into this abyss of nothingness where I don't know what's going to happen to me if I buy this ticket and take this ride, what on earth are you going to be doing? Oh, we're going to be watching. Because it's always entertaining. And that's the third step. In its purest form, is I make a commitment to buy the ticket and take the ride. The ride is steps four through nine. How I successfully turn my will and life over to the care of God and start to have a spiritual experience is through steps four through nine. What I'm really doing 
And the third step is saying this. I want what you have, and I'm willing to go to any length to get it. I believe it's happened for you, and I believe it could happen for me. And I need it so desperately that I'm willing to do anything. And so now I have the momentum of the steps one, two, and three as I go into the other steps. And then Bill in the big book wrote that beautiful, beautiful third step prayer. But it's a little religious for some of us, isn't it? But it's beautiful. I love that prayer. We have a book study where I live every Monday. We close the meeting with that, that prayer, word for word. Hold hands with 25 men and say that prayer. Every week it's a spiritual experience. But what I love about that prayer is not the prayer itself, but what Bill wrote right after the prayer. And this is what he said. The wording was, of course, quite optional. As long as we express the idea without reservation. Which means what? We're more interested in spirit than how memorization shows up in our home group. So what's the spirit of the third step prayer? God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Dad, I'm home. I've been gone a long time. I turned my back on you and I made a mess of it. But I'm home. And if I ever needed you, God, God, I need you now because I am so lost. Take away my difficulties. Relieve me of the bondage of self. I've been living in my head for so long, Dad. It's the biggest prison I've ever seen. I wake up thinking about me. I go through the day thinking about me, and it's not good. It's all my trouble, and what a mess I've made of everything. And I just can't get out of my own way, and it's just just choking me out on a daily basis. If you could take that away, give me a purpose. Maybe you can do something with a guy like me, because I've just made a mess of it. If you can find some value in me, if you can take away my difficulties, take away that bondage yourself, give me some purpose in life, show me how to live, I promise you I'll spend the rest of my life telling people you did it for me and I didn't do anything. I will talk about the undeserved gift and what you did for me. I will share the good news with anybody that's willing to hear it, that there's a way out for an alcoholic of my type. You see, that's the spirit of the third step for me. I come home... And I ask for help from God, and I don't have a right to ask. And God takes me to his chest, and he holds me close, and he says, I've been waiting so very long for you to come home. And great events are going to come to pass now for you and countless others. Thanks for listening.